Hi there, I'm Paulina Cameron, CEO of the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs, a national charity that educates, mentors, energizes, and connects women entrepreneurs. Welcome to season three of The Go-To for Entrepreneurs in the Know. The Go-To is brought to you by the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs in collaboration with the Scotiabank Women Initiative and generously supported by the Women's Enterprise Organizations of Canada. I'd like to acknowledge that production of this podcast is taking place on the unceded and ancestral lands of the Coast Salish peoples, specifically the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam nations. On our last season, we dove into resilience, and this season is all about the builders, the women entrepreneurs who are building businesses with big visions, building teams with great impact, building stronger communities, and growing our economy. They are the women behind the products and services that we admire. Their stories will take us on a journey and give us a peek into what's happening behind the scenes with their businesses at this critical stage of their growth, and will bring forward great nuggets of applicable wisdom and a solid dose of inspiration. Let's dive in. Okay, and just before we dive in, listen up. At the end of the season, we will be giving away a pair of Apple AirPods Pro, courtesy of our friends over at TELUS, so that you can have a delightful podcast experience on the go. All you have to do is enter to share your feedback. What did you love? What would you love to see going forward? Who would you like to hear from? Submit your thoughts at fwe.ca slash feedback, and we will draw one lucky winner at the end of the season. One of Marketing Magazine's top 30 under 30, Erin is an entrepreneur, marketer, former journalist, and startup advisor and investor. She is the co-founder and CEO at Willful, an online estate planning platform that makes it easy for Canadians to create a will in less than 20 minutes. Prior to Willful, she held leadership roles at communications agency 88, a startup publication beta kit, and at Sprouter, which was acquired by Postmedia in 2011. Erin is a frequent speaker with Speaker Spotlight, writes a column for the Financial Post, and is a tech commentator on CTV News. She has appeared in publications including the New York Times, Forbes, and CNN. All right, Erin, I'm so excited to dive in with you today. Hello and welcome. Thank you, Paulina. I'm so excited to be here and thank you for having me. Of course, my pleasure. Okay, Erin, so you have a really rich and experienced background in technology and communications and marketing. How did you end up running a tech company? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, you know, when they ask you when you're little what you want to be when you grow up, I certainly never said the CEO of an online estate planning company, although I (laughs) guess that wouldn't have really been an option in the 90s. But yeah, I mean, I grew up around parents who were not entrepreneurial. I didn't even know what an entrepreneur was really until after I graduated university. Uh, entrepreneurship wasn't really sexy when I was going through school and we didn't have those idols like Sarah Blakely at Spanx and all of the tech CEOs that are making headlines today. So uh, yeah, my goal was always just to go into marketing like my mom. She worked in marketing at Nortel and she got to go to really cool conferences in places like Geneva and Brazil. So I'm like, hey, there has to be something to this. She gets to make TV commercials and go to trade shows all over the world. I want to go into marketing too. Uh, And so she had taken journalism in school. So I decided, well, I'll just take journalism at the same school as her at Carleton, and then I'll go into marketing and then I'll get a corner office and bing, bang, boom, that'll be my career. And I I was on my way. I got my journalism degree from Carleton and I was working at a a mid-sized PR agency, which I really loved on the tech team. Uh, and I just happened to be introduced to a, a really amazing female entrepreneur named Sarah Prevet, and she basically just pulled me out of that career path and introduced me to the world of startups, and I have not looked back since. Okay, so you started by being pulled into the technology world. How did you get to being the CEO of Willful Wills today? Yeah, so uh, I have to give full credit there to my husband, Kevin. So I started working in the startup space uh, in-house at a startup in 2008. 
Uh, I then went on to be on the founding team at Betakit, the startup publication, and spent a couple of years as a journalist, and then spent six years running a, a tech marketing agency that did PR and graphic design and branding for consumer tech startups. So I had a lot of experience in the marketing space and then in business operations, running an agency and running the publication. Uh, but I've never been that kind of born entrepreneur who has ideas, mm -hmm. original ideas, right? Uh, whereas my husband, Kevin, even though he had a background in trades and wasn't, you know, on an entrepreneurial tech startup path, uh, he would come home with ideas every second day, half of which were just awful. And so he came to call me the dream killer because I was reporting on startups all the time at this time. And he'd walk in the door with an idea and I'd be like, nope, just wrote about a company that does that. Or no, I, seven companies just raised funding for that. So he started calling me the dream killer. And it became this kind of fun game to see if he could come up with an idea that I would actually not kill. Um, and this is a bad segue into his uncle passed away and uh, Kev kind of saw as a result of that, the lack of conversations that he had had about his end of life wishes. And uh, it just kind of made him think, you know, why are we using technology for so many things from mm -hmm. investing with Wealthsimple to traveling with Airbnb and yet estate planning, which is something every single family in Canada will go through, it's just completely broken. People aren't having the conversations. They're not recording them. Everything's on paper. You're still paying lawyers thousands of dollars. So he came home with this idea and said, hey, you know, I really want to launch a, a tool that helps people with estate planning. And while I did not kill the idea, I said, that's, a, that's actually a really great idea. I said, could you pick a less sexy idea? Like, you know, could we do like a fashion brand? or e-commerce or something like that. No, you want to do online wills? Okay, cool. And over time, I just fell in love with the problem. I fell in love with the mission, which was really to help people avoid having the, the you know, the hand-wringing, I don't know what Uncle Dave would have wanted conversations after someone passes away. And somehow, slowly over time, I was looking for a new challenge and that challenge became leading willful. And here we are a couple of years later. It's such a fascinating industry because it's really fraught with so much old school, so much roadblocking, so much you need to get this signed by this signed, and then you layer on the emotional challenges of it. I mean, talk about a hard nut to crack. And I'm curious if you can talk about, you know, where Willful is now, like what you've been able to accomplish to date, and where do you see the industry still really needing to evolve to bring your vision to life? To start, we've really just uh, created the TurboTax for estate planning. So for people who have simple situations, as you experienced, it's a simple questionnaire. We partner with lawyers in each province on the back end to draft all of that content. Uh, unfortunately, as you saw yourself, there's still an offline element in that the law requires that you have to print and sign your will on paper and have it witnessed. But um, hopefully the laws will change. COVID has really helped with that by showcasing that in-person processes are just not tenable at a time like this. So um, we've done what we can to simplify it. And now the law has to really change in order to, get, to go the full way. But actually, BC is the first province in Canada to pass legislation allowing for online signatures and online storage of wills. And that's expected to come into effect in Q1 of 2021. The vision for Willful is that every single Canadian adult has an up-to-date estate plan, not just a will, but all of the other things that go along with a will, like you know, life insurance if you if you need it, and um, burial and funeral preferences, and all of those other things that your family has to deal with or look for when you pass away. So we're definitely a ways away from that, but uh, I think the key starts with education. I always say to Kev, half my job is is running willful, and half my job is just educating Canadians about mm -hmm. what a will is, why they need one, what happens if you don't. Um, so I spend a lot of my time doing that. So I want to talk about the early days when you were starting out and kind of what happened between there to where you are now. I know you, I know you uh, acquired a business last year as part of your growth. You've brought on new team members. Can you talk us through some of those key milestones? For sure. Well, we definitely have a bit of a unique founding story in that uh, Kev started working on the business full time probably in 2016. Uh, and then I was still running my agency full time until 2019. So it was really just helping out behind the scenes. And when I came on, 
Willful was already live in three provinces, and we had raised that friends and family round, of which I was a part. So the last almost two years have really been focused on uh, raising some institutional funding. So we, I, I'm your girl if you want to talk about funding, because we've raised venture capital, angel group, individual angel accelerators and grants <laughs> in the past uh, two years. And we've grown our team to 15 uh, full-time people. So a mix of product, engineering, marketing, et cetera. Uh, we've expanded to seven provinces and we've created over 50,000 documents for Canadians. So it's been kind of a whirlwind over the last two years. And uh, I'm really, really proud of the, the pace of our growth. Okay, so you talked about funding. Let's dig into that a little bit. Uh, can you give me a few highlights and then a few like, oh my gosh, if I could go back and do this again, or how or I wish I would have learned this the first time around? Yeah, it's so funny because I spent you know, as I mentioned, a couple years at BetaKit, and I reported on funding rounds all the time. And I don't think I really understood what was happening at the other end. You know, the mm -hmm. person who had just closed the round of funding, all the trials and tribulations and no's that they received along the way to get that article in a news outlet. Uh, and having gone through it now firsthand, I can say there are way more downs than there are ups. But um, for us, one of the things that was really successful was going through the Founder Fuel Accelerator Program in Montreal. Uh, we went through it in the summer of 2019 when fortunately we were still allowed to go to Montreal in person and be part of the cohort. And that program came along with some funding, but more importantly, it came along with tons of advice and prep on getting our pitch ready for investors and just insight and connections that we wouldn't have had otherwise. And we had received at least five to 10 no's from other accelerator <laughs> programs. So it was definitely after years of trying to get into a program like that. Uh, so I definitely recommend for anyone listening who's considering an accelerator program. I mean, you have to know why you're going in and what you're looking to get out of it. But for us, we, we were able to hone that narrative and the story about the business and make some really great connections that ultimately led to the venture capital, meeting the venture capitalists that ended up putting money into the company recently. Um, the one thing I wish I had done before we even started was read the book Venture Deals by Brad mm. Feld. It's basically this entire guide to raising funding. It talks about the mechanics of venture capital firms, talks about the difference between angel, VC, crowdfunding, convertible debt, all of those types of things. And I wish I had read it earlier, but that's okay. Uh, I read it prior to raising our seed round, and I think it was still helpful. So I'm curious if you could get a little uh, technical and tangible with us. Did you, you know, build out a Word doc where you tried to preemptively think of all the questions you might get asked? How did you actually prepare for all those no's or the questions you might get put in front of? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, when I was running a PR agency, we always used to tell our clients, it's really important to list out all of the potential negative questions that you could be asked by the media and to prepare answers and rehearse them because you will be asked those negative questions and avoiding them isn't the answer. And it was the exact same thing that we did with our pitch deck. So in developing the pitch deck, we started with, you know, the guts of it, the, you know, pricing model and the vision and the team. And then we focused on narrative. How do we actually weave together a story that not only talks about why we're doing this and the product, but talks about the larger market opportunity. So for us, we opened our, our deck with the story about Kevin's uncle, really mm -hmm. talking about the personal connection. And then we extrapolated it into the macro trend, which is this massive wealth transfer that's about to happen between the boomers and the next generation and how proper estate planning will be really integral for that. Um, so I think as you're starting to think about weaving a narrative for your pitch deck, think about that personal connection or that story. Maybe it's yours, maybe it's a customer's, and how you can weave that and connect it to the macro trends that make this matter to investors. And how did you stay firm on some of the things that you knew were the important tenants? So you've said a few times, like the recurring revenue piece. Did you ever at any point consider, ah, oh, we really need to figure that out and add that in? Or did you know and trust that the model you had created was the right one to grow with? And how did you stick to that? It's a great question. I mean, I think I think in business, one of the best skills to have is to be confident, but also self-aware at your gaps, mm -hmm. right? And, and open to learning. And so I've always gone into things with the attitude of, um, I'm not an expert 
in a lot of things and I have room to learn. So I want to hear from mentors and potential investors. But I also have to to remember at the end of the day that I know more about my business and about the industry and about Mm -hmm. the product than anyone that I'm meeting for 30 minutes who's probably never, ever thought about estate planning before a day in their life, right? So it is this fine balance of not just taking everything everyone says with and implementing it, but then not being on the flip side, you have to be open to taking some advice and themes and recognizing that they have validity. So for us, it was a struggle because we there's they did something in Founder Fuel called Mentor Sprints, where over the course of an afternoon, you would meet with about 150 mentors in batches, and they would be throwing advice at you like mm-hmm. you were fielding baseballs in a batting <laughs> cage, right? And and you're kind of trying to furiously write it down and respond to their questions. And, I was going to say, I hope it's recorded. <laughs> yeah, well, we had note takers. But uh, but yeah, at the end of the day, we'd be like, which guy was that? The guy in the gray sweater? I can't remember him. What did he look like? Uh, but it was one of those moments where themes started to emerge. And one of them was, why aren't you guys B2B? Why aren't you guys mm. selling software to lawyers? And we kind of sat back as a team. There's only three of us, our CTO, Kevin and myself at that time. And we we looked at each other and we were like, you know, they might be right. They might be right that selling software to lawyers and helping them prepare wills more easily is actually the more lucrative, viable, better option, especially from a funding roadmap perspective, because mm-hmm. everyone loves B2B and everyone loves recurring revenue in SaaS companies. But we kind of looked at each other and said, do you want to sell software to lawyers? Kind of the reason that we got into this is because we want to help the average person. We want to make- That was like on the sexy line, even lower. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and also I'd spoken to people who are in legal tech who said it's really hard to sell to lawyers. They're mm-hmm. not super tech savvy for the most part um, and they have limited budgets. So if we do go down this path, we have to be cognizant of the challenges. So it was one of those moments where we looked at the feedback we were getting and we were like, that's not the company we are. That's not the company mm-hmm. we want to be. And we have to trust our gut that going this consumer path is, is going to work for us. So I guess all that to say, you're always going to receive uh, feedback from investors, from mentors, from your family, from your friends, from customers. And you have to find this balance of collecting it all and assessing it, but understanding that ultimately, you know more about your space. Okay, I want to totally switch gears and talk about working with your husband. Yes, I could talk about that all day and all night. You want the good stuff? You want the bad stuff? You want a mix? (laughs) I want the mix. I want the mix. But what I really want to know is, um, have you had, do you have any practices or habits or things that really work? Like, have you found, you know, I've talked to a lot of co-founders and some have special code words that they use when they need to either align or um, remind each other of something. Like, what are the, what are the little nitty gritty practices or ways of being together that you have found really effective for you? Yes. Well, one of them, as we were discussing prior to hitting record, is not working out of the same physical space every day right now, because during COVID, working with your spouse and living with your spouse can be a lot. And as you can probably tell, I love to talk and talk pretty loudly. So Kev goes to the office every day, which has been really nice because it just gives us that separation of physical space. And I feel grateful knowing that not everybody does have that second location to go to. But To be honest, it took us a while to find our groove. I think the biggest challenge in the early days, especially during Founder Fuel, when it was like 24-7 business relationship altogether, and we were just got married the October prior to that. Mm. So we were newlyweds. Happy honeymoon. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And new coworkers. And I think the, the fundamental thing that changed the trajectory from one that was maybe not going down the best path to one where everything is really um, seamless for the most part was recognizing that we should not work closely with each other. I am extremely Ah. type A and organized and just one of those people. And Kev is extremely the creative ideas guy Mm. who is more, you know, um, all over the place in a good way. And so me trying to get him to be as organized as I am and him trying to get me to step out of things and be more, it just wasn't working. So what we realized mm. was actually he should sit over here and handle this part of the business. I should sit over here and handle this part. He should actually report to someone different than than me because it's it's better to ah. not be his his boss. 
Um, and so that's really what's helped is that he kind of works closely with our COO and uh, we work together on some things, but more at a kind of high level and not on the nitty gritty day to day. And that has been a saving grace for us. What do you think has been your hardest lesson learned? Oh, my goodness. Um, I I won't go into details on the, the reason that I'm giving this answer, but uh, if you're going to work your butt off, work your butt off for yourself. Uh, I think, mm. you know, I spent the first 10 years of my career working my butt off 24-7 um, for other people's visions. And I'm mm. super grateful that I got a chance to do that in the early days of my career for people like Sarah, who have become mentors and friends and who I'm super grateful to have had that experience with. But, um, you know, I th- if you are going to act like an entrepreneur, put in entrepreneurial hours and be someone who likes small environments, ultimately, the only option for you is to mm. become an entrepreneur yourself. And if it's not to become an entrepreneur, then it's to work somewhere where you have, you know, skin in the game, equity, where you have a compensation model that recognizes the effort that's put in because, um, you know, Ultimately, you want to be able to wake up at the end of the day and know that you did it for for the right reasons and for yourself. So, um, yeah, I would say that's the the lesson I've learned the hard way over time mm-hmm. is definitely to to be in charge of of your own destiny instead of kind of leaving that up to others. Erin, as someone who uh, I I would I would you know those labels of multi hyphenate, I feel like that totally applies to you in that you are both a really uh, you are obviously CEO of a tech company. You are active in your community. You give back. I know you advise other companies and other boards. What um, what really drives you through those threads? Is there a common thread in it? Do you love contributing further to your community? Where does that energy come from? Oh my goodness. Energy is not how, energetic is not how I feel every day when I wake up. Every day I press snooze and I'm like, oh my God, can I please sleep (laughs) in until 11 a.m.? And I don't even have kids or pets, just a husband. Um, I think what has always driven me is kind of having an end goal for my career. So, you know, um, as I got to know the startup space better and I learned a bit more about philanthropy, it just became crystal clear to me in my mind that my end goal is to sit on the board of a public company and to have an angel, my own angel fund that invests in non-traditional founders. I love your vision, Erin, and I have no doubt that you're going to be able to bring that to life. And you already are through the work that you are doing, which is amazing. Um, In wrapping up, I want to ask you one more question, which is what do you feel is the most important business decision that you've made to date? Oh my goodness. Um, I mean, I would have to say, I want to say joining Willful and joining Kev on that vision, but I would have to say quitting my job at a PR agency and going to work for an entrepreneur, you know, as someone who really my vision was making six figures and having a corner office to to kind of quit a well-paying job during the last recession in 2008 um, and joining a startup as the second employee was so scary, especially because I asked a lot of my friends and some of them said, why would you do that? Why would you leave a, you know, it was not a cushy salary, but a salary to at, at the height of this recession to go to go do something that's extremely unknown. And I remember asking my mom at the time, what should I do? And she said, listen, you know, the worst case scenario, you go get your job back. You're a smart girl. That's, you know, you'll get another job, but this is the time in your life when you should take risks. And I'll be forever grateful to her for being the kind of parent who Mm -hmm. encourages me, someone to take risks versus telling them to play it safe. And I hope I can do that for my kids whenever I have them someday. Um, So yeah, so I think that put me on a path to entrepreneurship. And I always laugh thinking about, you know, that movie Sliding Doors with Gwyneth Paltrow? Yes, I recently rewatched it. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, these parallel lives. And I Mm -hmm. always think about Sliding Doors, Aaron, who's like Mm -hmm. sitting in an office working for like Pepsi doing marketing and how I'd probably still be happy. I'd I'd probably still have a great life, but wow, would I have missed out on this whole world of entrepreneurship that has just become my passion. So yeah. Mm, I have to say sliding doors, Paulina is like out on a farm somewhere. (laughs) Okay, Erin, for people who want to learn more about you and follow you online and plug in and perhaps get their will finally done off their to-do list, where can they do so online? 
Well, first of all, thank you for having me and for thinking that my insights are worth sharing. And if you're listening this far, thank you for listening to more about my journey and best of luck with yours. You can find me at Erin Burry on every social platform and Willful is W-I-L-L-F-U-L dot C-O. And if you do need to get your will done, you can use code FWE1515 at willful.co to save 15% on any plan. Thank you so much, Erin. Your insights were phenomenal. And I'm really looking forward to following your growth online. Thank you, Paulina. And uh, congrats on getting that will done. We are now going to take a quick pause before we hear from our next guest. The go-to for entrepreneurs in the know is the outcome of a collaboration between the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs and the Scotiabank Women Initiative. Let's take a moment to hear about our generous supporter. FWE is pleased to have teamed up with the Scotiabank Women Initiative. Did you know that they have an advisory board consisting of Scotiabank executives who share their expertise during mentorship advisory sessions? They cover a variety of subjects for women entrepreneurs on topics such as this one growing service-based business. To join the program, go to scotiabankwomeninitiative.com slash join now. An award-winning social entrepreneur, Jen Harper is the founder and CEO of Cheekbone Beauty Cosmetics. Cheekbone Beauty is a digitally native, direct-to-consumer brand that is helping Indigenous youth see themselves in a beauty brand while using the concept of a circular economy in the brand's ethos and in developing their latest line of products. Creating a new segment in the beauty industry, sustainable, socially conscious beauty, Jen Harper has been making a name for herself in the beauty industry for a number of years, but has been gaining popularity quickly after being on the hit CBC show, Dragon's Den. Hello, Jen. Welcome. I'm so looking forward to our conversation. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Okay, Jen, so I read out Cheekbone Beauty's uh, incredible kind of backstory and history and who it is and what the brand is all about. And I would love to hear in your own words, what got you to where you are today? How did that first moment happen of when you made the leap? Wow. Yeah, that's a, I'm like trying to think, you know, it's hard. I I guess it's hard to like pinpoint an actual moment uh, because there was a lot happening in the background and all the processes that sort of led me to make the decision to start a a business or Mm -hmm. I had no idea even what like entrepreneurship meant or what that word was, I guess, until I, I got into this. But literally, it ultimately stemmed from that crazy dream I had back in 2015 about a bunch of Native little girls covered in lip gloss and and this idea that I could create a brand that was about giving and use beauty as a platform to talk about maybe some uncomfortable subjects that happen within the Indigenous community and then also use this platform as a a place where Indigenous kids felt represented and seen. And so that was like the beginning of how this journey began. Mm, So beautiful. Can you tell us about the dream? They were just like native little girls and they were in the dream. They were covered in lip gloss, like from head to toe, like like something of a child when they got into paint or something like that and they were in trouble. But it, it was sticky, glossy, messy. Uh, and I remember the most from the dream, just like vividly how much they were laughing about sort of mm. the mess they have made of themselves and how happy they were. Uh, and I say that like when I woke up that morning or it was in the middle of the night that I was like, okay, yeah, I'm just going to figure out like how to make lip gloss. And then I thought, okay, so learning that same year. So it's interesting how that everything I was learning about residential school, my grandmother being a a residential school survivor, and how we could possibly take part of the funds from the the profits of the products being sold and turn that into maybe scholarship funds for Indigenous kids somehow. So nothing was really clear, but I guess the central idea was there. And that was this concept of just empowering Indigenous kids and and trying to figure out how we could be a part of enhancing their lives. Mm. That's such a beautiful place to start of that very clear, everything else murky, but the very clear vision of the impact that it would have and it could make. So where, where is the business today? What does today look like? Now we are in the, we just hired a full-time chemist who is starting with us February 1st. We're building a lab 
where he and I are going to work together and really create products uh, based on our new mission of being even more sustainable. Mm. Um, saying that we're a sustainable business, I think, is really, really trendy at this moment in history because it's so needed and important. Uh, however, we're really going to sit down together and, you know, he's coming in, in this with trained scientists and 15 years of experience already creating beauty products. I knew he was going to be hired just because of how into this idea that I have in my head, he was into it as well. And it was really exciting for him because when you're working for big brands as their, as their chemist, you're really thrown concepts from the marketing team right? and they sort of have to figure that out. Um, and it's all done very rushed. Like they want them to formulate a product in like is lightning speed, whereas really to bring a, a really great product to market, it's a couple year process. It doesn't happen that quickly. And so he was also like, how much time do we have? And I was explaining to him like, no, we're going to take our time. We're probably going to make a ton of mistakes and that's okay because we're going to learn so much. And he, I think he was just excited by the freedom that he'll mm. now have to work for a brand that wants to make things that really are not going to impact the planet using better ingredients and, and truly trying to make things more sustainable. It sounds like you're also kind of flipping the entire production process and ecosystem on its head, because as you said, usually marketing comes up with the ideas, presumably because they think it's going to sell, therefore produce what they know is going to sell, fitting the current market. But what you're really saying is, let's make the, the best, the most values aligned, the most sustainable product. Let's really think about the process and then teach the market, teach consumers, teach community why it matters and buy into that vision. So you said something, Jen, that I would love to touch on a little bit more, which is um, you talked about integrating an Indigenous way of doing it or different practices or principles of knowing. How have you already been embodying those Indigenous or matriarchal values or ways of being into your business? What What is different about that and how does that come to life at Cheekbone? I think some of the ways unknowingly at first is the this idea of trying to con create businesses that are more about circles versus uh, um, hierarchy, right? Mm -hmm. Like where, you know, there's founders and leaders, but within teams, um, there's always sort of that structure that comes from the systems that already exist. Um, but the Indigenous way of doing things is always about a circle where you're bringing everyone into it and everybody has a voice. So regardless of what level or how long you've been at Cheekbone Beauty, we want to hear from everyone on our team and every department and mm -hmm. all of, of what they have, including that includes our community, which is our, our customers uh, and people from Indigenous communities. Um, for instance, we're doing a lot of um, education for ourselves and we're trying to really educate the rest of the world uh, about Indigenous languages in North America uh, and around the world. And just by simply naming our lipsticks, um, the, the word for land from different areas. And we did that because we realized so many people don't even stop to think about the people that lived on this land before they lived here and what a, what a great way to teach them something. And so mm -hmm. that is incorporating the the person who purchases the lipstick they're learning about our language and and then invites them into our circle to learn more so when you started it was just you how what is your team like now you have a chemist you're bringing on tell us a little bit about how that's grown yeah there's some um, 14 of us on the team and eight are full-time and the rest are part-time. So we've grown quite a bit. I said to um, a friend the other day that there was a problem and I didn't know about it. And I like literally got so happy because <laughs> you have no idea that that is like incredible, like not to know about a problem, but it got fixed and everything worked out. And I, I didn't lose a wink of sleep. Like that is marvelous. That's such After a milestone. Years, Oh, I and I and I, I didn't realize it until it happened. But that's what hiring people um, on your leadership team really does is that, you know, those little things that you are faced with every single day, especially as an early founder, and doing the role of CEO, you're doing everything. And I know a lot of small business owners understand that. So having 
finally people that are really there to help make those decisions and become part of that circle, right? That, that, uh, and figure out the problem and solve it without you even knowing. <laughs> it was amazing. Okay, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about growing the business from a financial side. So obviously, capital and financial resources are really important. Um, in a product-based business, you need to finance things like inventory and build and do all of those elements. Can you walk us through what that has looked like for you, perhaps some of the um, the peaks and the highlights and any challenges that you have worked through along the way? Yeah. So for the first uh, few years, I was on my own, just really, you know, traditional bootstrapping. I worked a full-time job and was really doing cheekbone on the weekends and on the e- in the evenings. But really, it was another full-time job on top of, of, of my full-time job, the job that was paying my bills and my mortgage and car payments and all those sorts of things. Uh, but then I, you know, I remember it was just like about a year in and I'm doing all the, I visited a, a business advisory board and they really wanted me to focus on the financial plan. And I did. And after looking at the numbers, I realized, oh my goodness, like this is going to be three to five years, mm. just depending on, on on sales revenue, if I'm ever going to be able to quit that full-time job and go all in on cheekbone. And um, I had to make a decision in that moment. Like, am I going to move forward and keep working this hard? Because um, it was, you know, 80-hour work weeks. It was really long. Sometimes it felt like 100, and it probably was. I just don't want to admit that publicly. <laughs> <laughs> well, just um, cut that out. <laughs> yeah. And because I don't encourage it because when I, that mm. those three years, it was really a blur. Um, and I literally say, I, cause I, I, I don't think that that's sustainable for any human being to go on with a, a project like that, but losing, I lost my brother to suicide in 2016. Mm. And so literally that pain was what like ignited and pushed this passion and this business, realizing the importance of our mission and vision, which is helping every Indigenous kid on the planet see and feel their enormous value in the world. And my brother's words to me back in the May before the September that he died, he was just like, this is amazing, Jen. Like our youth, he was a youth worker on our reservation. And he said, our kids just need hope and they need help. Mm -hmm. Like, which meant to me when he was saying it's like, he had no idea anyone like just like me, a regular person could create a business and then design it to actually help people or help or, or try to support a group of people. Like he didn't think that that was possible. And he was so excited that I was doing this. And so, you know, um, through those three years when I was working that much, there were so many times that I don't think looking back now, if I didn't have that, that, um, that, that painful companion of his death, like it was the driving, it was what was driving me for, for three years of doing this on, on the side. And um, it, it's almost there, I couldn't give up. There wasn't, there, mm-hmm. there was no option about giving up. So I just kept going. And I really truly believe now that our investors saw how hard I worked. Cause mm-hmm. that is like not normal to work that much and build a business that is actually like a, a company while you're working another job. And I think they believed in Cheekbone that much because of how hard I worked on it and saw the growth that we had in that short period of time. So Raven really did see that our investors, the people that did invest in us, did see that we were com- we weren't just here to create another lipstick just to sell it. That we had this idea a- about building a sustainable business and brand that was about supporting Indigenous communities. So I think they saw that and believed in us, and they gave us some. Um, what what I think the industry calls seed funding, you know, we had an 18 month deal to see what they could do, or what Cheekbone could do as a brand with that with that funding. And then we just uh, in December, when they closed their first fund, uh, we then created that seed funding and converted that debt into equity. So they're now um, an equity partner with us. And, you know, it is really fascinating when I think about with their funding, what we've been able to do in one year's time, essentially, because they came in in August of 2019. And we closed the equity deal in December of 2020, even through a pandemic. You talked about 
what you've been able to do with those funds and, you know, 100% with you, there needs to be so much more investment with these kinds of criteria in mind of what is the impact. I'm really curious when you got those funds a year ago, or just over a year ago, I guess now, how did you prioritize what you wanted to spend it on? What did you um, what did you make decisions around to fuel that? So it was all about building out the sustain line. And so that lipstick launched um, in March 2020. uh, But that was the initial crux of, I guess, where that funding would have gone. One, pay myself a salary. Two, hire some people to help. And then get the... uh, really build out like an R&D department, which I didn't mm. realize early on how important that is when you're building um, building a business that really with new ideas and new concept. And so how important research and development is. And we're really lucky that we have their investment. We have IRAP, which is a Canadian government research funding that supported our project as well. So um there was a couple of things that happened last year that would have been critical in us being able to have a research and development division. That's amazing. Um, it's amazing to go from, I guess I'm going to make lip gloss to running a research and development division. I love it. Um, you were also, Jen, on Dragon's Den. I'm wondering if you can speak to a bit about how that experience was. Uh, how did you find it for your business? Yeah, it was really, really fun, but really, really scary at the mm-hmm. same time. But what it re- it did help with initially was I w- had never pitched my business before mm-hmm. Dragon's Den. Pitching your business like that um, gave me the time to hone my pitch and then practice like uh, practicing it for months before the show. So anyway, I fumbled my way through. Uh, the producers of the show were amazing. They all did a great job. And at the end of the day, it really was great marketing for our brand as well to get in front of our national audience and be able to talk about the business and the things we're trying to do. So, And then it actually went on Netflix in um, last year in 2019. So we were on the season premiere of 2019. So then in 2020, Netflix uh, is a partner with Dragon's Den. So they uh, started showing that season that we were on as well. So we kept like all of that marketing kept going, which was great. And that experience of actually having to practice for a pitch and prepare and go through it, not just to friends. I mean, it's so powerful. And I know sometimes entrepreneurs can feel one overwhelmed by it or two, you know, even putting together a business plan, it feels like it's going to be old news the day after you write it, which in some case it's true, but the exercise of doing it is still so valuable. When you look back on the last five years, five, five and a bit years, what do you think, is there, was there a moment that really changed the trajectory of your business that really amplified it either in your own mindset or perhaps um, something that happened within the business? You know, your brother's, um, your brother's death really sounds like the, the mindset one that really um, had you recommitted and deeply committed to it. Is there anything on the business side, perhaps that kind of shifted things really significantly? When we started getting some traction, having some success in 2018, and I would see our orders going out, and I kept concerning myself literally with, oh, I don't like our packaging. I think Mm -hmm. it's too much. And that's when I personally was uncomfortable with how much packaging we were using. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were using those shiny, pretty mailers early on, which don't get recycled and are um, uh, really they're thrown into landfills. So I just started feeling really uncomfortable with that, the success, but the impact that it was having negatively on the environment. Right. And so that's when I dove into sustainability and doing like, I just spent so much time on research in 2020 um, uh, sorry, in 2018 on that, but learned a ton and really realized that that's the direction for our ne- our product journey that we were going to take. And it meant, you know, losing time on bringing out more products and all sorts of things. But um, I think this is for us and for me personally, that it was the only direction I could go in. It would, didn't feel right doing anything else. Mm. It, once you have that moment, it's so hard to not be in integrity with it, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. So what what advice or what kind of um, perspective could you offer to entrepreneurs who perhaps, you know, are, are might be feeling the same thing, but maybe they're concerned about the cost of it. Like maybe they're worried that the cost is going to eat into any margins that they have or about complicating their process or operations. Can you share any insight around that? Yeah. Well, number one, like the reality is if we're, if everything's easy and comfortable, we're not doing anything special or different. Like mm-hmm. everything in life is supposed to be challenging and that's when we're growing and that's when we're learning the most. It's actually better for all of our brains. Like this is neuroscience. Like the more frustrating something is, the better it actually is for our brains. We're going to have, uh, we're going to grow older, remembering more things like it, that, that. that's a healthy process. So we don't want to get comfortable and complacent, I think, in the things mm-hmm. we're doing. Um and if, if it's making you uncomfortable or you realize that there is changes that need to be made, you, you, I think your your inner voice is not going to let you rest until it knows you do something about the way you're feeling about a project. So for sure, just listening to that and, and realizing that nothing is going to be easy. My last question is as an entrepreneur and as an entrepreneur who worked 80, 100 hours a week at some point in her business life, how do you now take care of yourself? How do you think about mental health? And what do you, I see you cringing a little bit. And what do you maybe, you know, what do you maybe hope can be different for entrepreneurs, for women entrepreneurs going forward? Yeah, so I I know I'm not alone when that that is still a work in progress for sure. I just like I have a whole bunch of pencil crayons on my desk here because I just started coloring and I don't draw ever. Like if you've, I do when I have ideas for for the business and I'm drawing out what I think they're terrible drawings, but I'm drawing (laughs) that. So I'm actually just trying to spend more time doing creative things like that. Um, whether it's journaling, drawing, I do have a really strong spiritual routine where I wake up in the morning and it's based, there's a lot of prayer meditation happening. Um, and that sort of sets the tone for my day mm-hmm. and trying to walk as much as possible. I'm all about getting those 10,000 steps in. So first thing in the morning after I do that routine, I'm like, put my sneakers on and head outside and try to get those done first thing in the morning. So I'm not uh, missing that because we sit so much now um, and I'm, I'm trying to stay physically fit and healthy, but it's really, really hard because, you know, it, I don't know, as I'm getting older, I'm just finding it so much harder, but just try spending time with my family for sure. Like that is really, really important to me. I have two teenagers and um though I know they won't be here forever anymore, right? Mm-hmm. They're going to grow up and leave soon. So still trying to spend as much time with them. So you've grown the business to my understanding from what I've seen mostly as direct to consumer. I'm wondering um, what decisions you made around that and if you ever have plans to grow differently and how do you envision that part of your business? Mm, that is an awesome question. And I think purposefully did grow it digitally um, and direct to consumer to test the market because before, you know, before this is long before the let's build a lab, let's hire a scientist. Um, we wanted to see, does anyone even care if cheekbone beauty exists? And then once we prove that, okay, there is a market, people do want our brand to exist. Now let's figure out how we're going to make the best most incredible sustainable products. And once we have those, uh, we do definitely plan on reaching different distribution channels, which will include traditional retail. Um, However, for like the rest of the world right now, that traditional retail might not look like what it looked like um, last year or the Mm -hmm. year before. So we're just here paying attention to what's happening in that space. But of course, having a partner that is uh, you know, the a Sephora of the world, which is an international uh, distribution channel for beauty products. Of course, we would love a relationship with someone like that. Okay, so Sephora, if you're listening, here you go. Here is your next product to carry. <laughs> 
Thank you so much, Jen, for this conversation. I am so inspired by the work that you are doing. I love your product as well. And I really, um, really look forward to continuing to see what you create because it sounds like with your lab, sky is going to be the limit, but not even. Maybe there will be simply no limit. So I really look forward to following along. And for those who also want to continue following along, uh, where can they find you online? We are at cheekbonebeauty.com or .ca. <laughs> We're at both. <laughs> and for your audience, if they use the code FWE2021, they can get 10% off, off, off everything in our store. Thank you so much, Jen, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. Thank you so much, Jen and Aaron, for the great conversation. Our mission at the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs is to amplify the voices of Canadian women entrepreneurs across all platforms. Typically, this time would be used as an ad or sponsor spot, but we've decided to dedicate the next 60 seconds to a woman-owned business in Canada to share their vision. Let's have a listen. Hello, my name is Jamila and I am the co-founder of Nayoka Design Labs. Have you ever asked yourself, what if every single product you were using today was regenerative for the earth? Meaning that after throwing it out where it degrades, it gives back to the land. It gives back to the earth. Well, Paige and I ask ourselves this question. And so we created Nayoka Design Labs with the intention of designing technologies that will be regenerative for the earth. And so we started with our first invention, the Nayoka Light Wand, the world's first bioluminescent portable, non-toxic, and plastic-free light source. Most recently, we launched the Lumis, a really fun and beautiful light source, again, following this idea, which of course, we are continuing to work on and we need your support. We're building a movement. We want this to expand across the world because we understand that in order to change, everyone needs to play their part. We invite you to follow us on social media. Find us at Light by Nayoka. Find us on LinkedIn, on Twitter, or go to our website, nayokadesignlabs.ca. I look forward to connecting with all of you. Being an entrepreneur is life-changing, often deeply impactful and energizing, and it can also be overwhelming, lonely, and challenging. Whether you're thinking about starting your own business now or you've been at it for years, we are here for you. We offer outcome and impact-focused programs, education designed specifically for entrepreneurs, and a deeply supportive community. Our entrepreneurs say that the highlight of their time with us is not only the tangible results they experience within themselves and their business, but also the incredible sense of community with other women who share similar goals, values, and visions. Visit us at fwe.ca discover to join us and to learn more about how to be part of the community of education, mentorship, and support. Thank you for spending time with us and listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, share, and leave a review. Our goal is to leave no woman behind. Explore more about this episode and learn how to get plugged into our community by visiting fwe.ca slash discover and on our socials at fwecanada. Thank you again to the Scotiabank Women Initiative and remember to visit scotiabankwomeninitiative.com slash join now to find out how to join. Huge thanks also to the Women's Enterprise Organizations of Canada for your support. And last but certainly not least, thank you to our incredible production team, Self Hired Media. This podcast is also available in French, thanks to our incredible translation team at Hummingbird Translations. See you next time.